thank you for downloading this podcast from Gaimere Baptist Church. You can find out more about our church at our website, gaimerebaptist.org.au. May God speak to you as you listen. This morning's Bible reading is from Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 through to chapter 2 to verse 3. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Well, good morning, everybody. It's uh, lovely to be here with you today, um, and nice looking out and seeing some familiar faces, um, people I grew up with. I actually grew up down here in the Sutherland Shire, I live in Newcastle now, um, grew up in the Shire, so I was very excited when the Sharks won the uh, grand final last year. I've been gloating about it ever since up in Newcastle. Um, but you know, my, my, my life down here growing up, I probably never realised it while I was growing up, but it was really a, a very blessed and charmed existence. So I was fortunate enough to live on the waterfront and in summer basically spent my life on the water. I had a windsurfer, I'd be out windsurfing, I had a sailing dinghy that I raced on, on the weekends I, and I had a tinny. I was one of those dreaded ratty kids who was, you know, zooming up and down the river in a tinny, finding cruises to jump the waves and, and do all kinds of things that now I think I'm lucky I survived. But, you know, it left me with this deep and abiding love of, of, of water, of the ocean and the, and the seas. And... Uh, Ever since my childhood, I've, I've just found that uh, the, the oceans and the places and things in them fill me with a sense of joy and delight. I got married in 1987 just down the road at Caringbar Baptist Church and Sandy and I honeymooned into Sundays. And one of the highlights of that was going out to the Great Barrier Reef and snorkelling on the reef. So we, we went out in this large motorised catamaran and uh, 60 k's offshore. So when you, you looked around in any direction... You couldn't see land anywhere. All you could see was ocean. And we pull up beside a pontoon, and we get, all get onto the pontoon. They give us snorkeling gear, and they say, jump in. Well, all I could hear in my head was the theme music from Jaws. But, you know, I, I overcame my fear. I jumped in, and all my fears evaporated because it was like diving into joy. It was absolutely spectacular. Corals of every hue stretched out as far as I could see. 
and then we're surrounded by all those tropical fish with their amazing kaleidoscope of colours and shapes. And the next two or three hours we spent snorkelling. Well, stay with me forever. It's an experience I've never forgotten. It was just wondrous. Well, a few years ago, I did actually manage to jump in the water with sharks. I went cage diving with great white sharks off Port Lincoln on uh, South Australia. We took the three-hour journey out to the islands where the sharks ate on seals and hoped they wouldn't eat on us. I spent an hour under the water in a cage with these enormous, magnificent creatures swimming around us. The, the largest shark we saw was like that one. It was about five and a half metres long. And they swam so close you could have reached out and touched them if you were foolish enough to do that. You probably also would have lost your hand. But it was, it was a different kind of awe and wonder than I experienced on the reef because this was you know, just the, the fearsome awe and wonder of, of an apex predator. But they had amazing grace. They just hardly seemed to move as they you know, swam through the water. But at the moment they wanted to seek a piece of prey, they just could turn on the speed and the ferocity in an instant. And again, I experienced a sense of absolute awe and wonder at life and the world in which I live. Well, in between snorkelling the Great Barrier Reef and diving with great whites, I've had a whole bunch of other opportunities to enjoy the beauty of the world, particularly in the ocean. Um, I don't know if you've ever been down to Phillip Island and seen the fairy penguins. They're amazing creatures, aren't they? These, these little creatures and they, they, they kind of nervously run across the beach after they've been out in the ocean fishing to get back to their burrows. And again, when I saw that, it was just like life was parading itself in front of me and it filled me with joy. I visited Seligen Island a few years ago, which is in Malaysia. It's the only place in the world where those giant sea turtles haul themselves out of the ocean, across the sandy beach, dig a nest, lay their eggs, and then haul themselves back into the ocean. And I got to, to witness this. It was spectacular. The following morning, um, all the little hatchlings from previous layings popped up through the sand. And they were like, little motorised toys, you know, that you, you wind up and they flap furiously, they have these little flippers going flap, 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 and somehow they just know that they've got to get from the sand down into the ocean. And again, it was spectacular. And I've had experience after experience like this, and it just leaves me with joy, wonder, and awe. And the older I get, my, the greater my appreciation is growing for the complexity and wonder of the world in which we live. But I've also had to come to grips with the fact that humankind has become the single most destructive force on the planet. We have grown so numerous and so affluent that we are placing demands upon the planet's environmental systems that it is simply not able to bear. And we're pushing them beyond the brink of what they're capable of providing. And the signs are all around us. Let me give you a couple of these signs. Between 1970 and 2012, the number of wild animals living on this planet declined by 58%. Think about that for a minute. That's in my lifetime. The number of animals on this planet has declined by almost 60%. And the international community is pulling out its hair, trying to find ways to stop this from cascading even further. One third of global fisheries have been decimated by overfishing. We've simply taken the fish out of the oceans at such a rate that they can't repopulate. 
And again, we're, we're trying to figure out how do we stop this from extending to all the world's fisheries. 75% of the world's coral reefs are at threat. And one of the latest threats, as you know, is bleaching. And what happens when there's a bleaching event, instead of a, uh, a kaleidoscope of colours greeting you when you dive in the water, you're just met with a, a blanket of white because it's a reef that is dead. Reefs can survive bleaching events, but the number of bleaching events are becoming greater and more frequent than ever before and taking us into the danger that we're going to lose large numbers of the world's reefs and that will spell disaster for the ecology of the ocean, for those communities that depend upon the reefs and in Australia, for example, for our tourism industry. Our Pacific Island neighbours are watching their homelands disappear in front of their very eyes. As sea levels are rising due to climate change, the, the sands becoming, land's becoming more saline and literally beaches are disappearing. And they're facing the fact that they're going to have their entire populations are going to have to move somewhere else because their islands are simply disappearing. The World Health Organization, conservative body, hardly given to exaggeration, has predicted that on current trends with climate change, in the years 2030 to 2050, climate change will be, result in 250,000 additional deaths every year. The signs are all around us. For millennia, creation has sung a hymn of praise to the Creator. And we read it in the Psalms. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Psalm 8, the psalmist sits there. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And he's blown away by the beauty of the earth. And we are right to join creation in this song of, of praise to the Creator. We are right to look at the beauty of the reef, the majesty of the great white shark, the playful ways of the fairy penguin, the amazing lumbering of the great sea turtles across the beach, and join in creation's praise of God. But in our day, creation is not only singing a song of praise, it is singing a lament. It is crying out that it is being robbed of its diverse species, that the delicate balance of forces that enables Earth to sustain life is being pushed beyond breaking point and that humankind has become its enemy. All of those changes I mentioned to you are due to human activity of one kind or another. A few years ago, a group of Earth scientists put together a seminal paper where they said the planet has boundaries, environmental boundaries, that we need to live within. And they identified nine of these. I'm not going to go through them now, but they're on that chart there. And they said, you know, if we live within those boundaries, we're in a safe operating space where the Earth can nourish us and it can nourish its living creatures. But if we push beyond those boundaries, we start to see not only a depleting of the Earth's capacity, but we actually start to see these um, exponential changes and potentially unpredictable changes that really turn the systems back on themselves. And you can see there that one, two, three, four, five, six of those have read against them. What that's telling you is that we, we are either exceeding the boundary on that issue or we are accelerating toward it at such a rapid rate. These are the key environmental systems that enable our planet to sustain life, and we are pushing them beyond breaking point. So how do we respond to that as followers of Jesus? How do we respond to that as those who worship the creator of all this? I'd like to suggest two things. I think first we need to revisit our theological heritage. 
because I think we have not actually fully grasped the big picture the Bible has for the creation. And then secondly, having grasped the Bible's big picture, we need to find ways to live that are consistent with it. So let's spend some time teasing that big vision of the Bible. The, uh, the history of the Christian church has been that we've, we've taken just a small slither of the biblical things about creation and we've focused on them so strongly to the neglect of the wider biblical emphasis, the bigger biblical emphasis, that we've actually come up with a distorted view of the world. And we've come up with a distorted understanding of God's relation to the world and our relation to the world. And I just want to take you through three of those big changes. So we're going to cover a lot of theological ground here in fairly quick time. The first change, which you can see up here, is that we took a partial vision and held onto it, this idea that the earth is a resource for humankind, when the Bible's bigger vision, I suggest to you, is that the earth is the temple of God. You go to the book of Genesis and you open the first chapter and it has a really clear structure. The first three days, God creates the physical structures of the universe, the spaces of the universe. And then on the second three days, God fills those spaces with the corresponding elements. So on day one, God creates night and day. You can see there on day four, God fills the night and day with the things that mark it, the sun, moon and stars. On day two, God separates the waters below from the waters above. In other words, he creates the oceans and the skies. And on day five, what does he do? He fills the ocean with sea creatures and he fills the skies with birds. On day three, God creates the land, separates land from water and puts vegetation on it. On day six, what does God do? Fills the land with those things that belong on it, so land, animals and humankind. And you know what we did? Our theologians for centuries, for millennia, have looked at this and said, everything looks as though it's just structured to bring humankind into being. We We are the final act of creation. And if we're the final act of creation, surely that must mean that everything that was made in the lead up to the day six and the creation of humankind was created for us, was created for our benefit. So you go back to the church fathers. They're the group of theologians who wrote the, were the generations immediately after the apostles. And you read their writings and they say, everything God made, he made for us. It's ours. That's the sole reason the earth exists for you and for I to get resources. You come forward to the time of the Reformation and you read scholars like John Calvin and you find exactly the same thing in his commentary on Genesis. He says, God made it all for human beings. That's why the earth exists. You come forward even further to the contemporary day and you read modern commentaries and you'll find the same argument in many of them. But what's the problem with that argument? Well, look at the structure of Genesis 1. Does Genesis 1 finish on day 6? Finishes on day 7. In fact, day 7 structurally is the climax of the passage, not the creation of human beings on day 6. Day 1 corresponds to day 3. Day 2 corresponds to day 4. Day 3 corresponds to day 6. And then the day that stands apart, the day that's different, is day 7. But we don't know what to do with that because nothing much seems to happen on day seven. You know, on day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, day six, God does this amazing stuff, calls the entire universe into being. It's exciting, it's thrilling, it's amazing. 
then you get to day seven, which is supposed to be the climax of the narrative. It says God had a day off. God rested. Well, what do you do with that? And because we have not quite understood what to do with that, we've, we've flipped back to saying that humankind is the climax of the creation story. But a number of biblical scholars are now saying, you know, there's one little piece of information that everybody who heard the creation story back at the time when it was written would have known, that we don't know. There's one vital clue to understanding what's going on that we miss because we're culturally distant from the text. And that vital clue is this. In the ancient world, God's always rested in temples. God's always rested in temples. So if you're in the ancient Near East and somebody tells you that God, a God rests, what they're actually telling you is that the God is in his temple, ready to take up the work of being God and, and, and governing those he, he, that are his own. So what John Walton says, who's uh, a scholar from Wheaton College in the United States, he said, you know, when people heard this text in the ancient world, they would have heard it as a temple text. And they would have instantly gone, ah, oh, now I get what days one, two, three, four, or five, or six about. They're about creating the temple of God. They're about creating the space that God wants to dwell, that God wants to be known, that God wants to exhibit his grandeur and his glory. The earth is the temple of the Lord. And this is picked up at a number of points throughout the Bible, which we won't go into now for the sake of time. But doesn't that change things, don't you think? What that's telling you is that the climax of the creation story is not us. It's actually God establishing the world as his temple, as the place he longs to be known, as the place he wants to show off his greatness and his glory. And that means not everything was created for us. It's not all about us. It's actually about God. And the world being a fit place for the presence of God. So God creates a world that's fit to meet the needs of all his creatures, but that is not the whole story. The high point of the story is that God creates a world fit for his own presence, and which calls us to be worshippers. That's the big vision of scripture. Somewhere along the way we lost that and just reduced the creation of the world to it's all about us and our need. There's a second way. We took a partial picture of God's relation to creation and overemphasized it at the expense of the broader vision. And that's when we think about the objects of God's love. One of the powerful messages of the Christian faith is that God loves you. God loves you unconditionally. There's nothing you can do to stop God loving you. There's nothing you can do to make God love you more. There's nothing you can do that will make God love you less. God just loves you with a passion. He longs for your well-being. He longs for your future. God loves passionately. And we've taken that message and said, God loves human beings, and that's absolutely true. But way back, early in the history of the church, we somehow said God doesn't really love anything else. God, we said, loves the rational. Human beings are rational. Animals and other parts of creation are not. So the value and worth of humans draws forth God's love where the animals and other creatures don't. But that's actually not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches, I would put to you, that the very same passionate and deep love God has for you and for I, 
he has for the entire created order. And we miss the clues. Let me give you a couple of examples. The book of Job tells the story of this guy whose life is hit by disaster. And his friends come along and say, well, it's because you've been really wicked, Job. God's punishing you. And Job says, I haven't been wicked. There's no reason I should be getting punished. I think God's attacking me. God's not acting in a just fashion. And we get to the end of the book, there's these 38 chapters of them debating and furiously getting angry and angry and angry with one another. And we get to the end of the book and God says to Job, Job, you know, I understand your pain, but mate, you just, there's just too much you don't know. You say, I don't know what I'm doing. Well, let me take you on a little tour of creation. And it's like David Attenborough's got to, you know, take him through. And there's these chapter after chapter of God saying, look at this part of creation. Do you understand that, Job? Um, no, Lord. Um, look at this part of creation. Do you understand that, Job? No, Lord. And God just kind of overwhelms Job with his lack of knowledge, but God's capacity to govern a very complex world. And there's parts that emphasize the majesty and the power of God, but you know, there's these parts that emphasize the tender hearted love of God for the creation. So in one of the verses, it talks about God just waiting, waiting with longing expectation for the mountain goat to be born. This is a God who's engaged with and loves his creation. Or you go to the book of Jonah. You know the story of Jonah the prophet. He gets sent off to Nineveh and uh, he doesn't want to go because he knows if he goes to Nineveh and he preaches that God's going to judge them, they might turn and repent. And if they turn and repent, God will save them. And Job doesn't want that because Nineveh's been a violent, powerfully evil city. Job doesn't want them to get saved. So he refuses to go. God eventually gets him there anyhow. What Jonah fears happens, he preaches to them, they repent, God turns his heart towards them, and Jonah is really angry with God. And he goes and he sits under a vine that's grown up overnight, and he says, I just, I just want to die. I hate the fact that you've saved these Ninevites. And God confront, confronts Jonah quite gently. And he says, Jonah, you're concerned about this vine that gave you shade because it, it withered away overnight. But don't you think I should be concerned about Nineveh? And the thing he says about that that's truly amazing is let me read to you these verses. The Lord said to Jonah, you have been concerned about this vine that you've been taking shade, that you did not tend or grow, it sprang up and died overnight. But Nineveh, has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left. Now listen to this. Nineveh has 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left. You know what comes next? And many cattle as well. God didn't send Jonah to Nineveh just to save the Ninevites. He sent him there to save the cattle. That just blows my mind. It's not how I'm used to thinking of God. But God's passion extends to all creation. Or you come to Jesus and he's forever saying, look at the birds of the air. They don't sow nor, nor toil, but your heavenly father provides for them. So if he provides for them, if he cares for them, surely he must care for you too. And Jesus continually drawing these parallels and saying, because God loves all his creation, you can be sure that God certainly loves you. And I could go on and on. There's example after example in the Bible where it talks about the love, the deep, passionate love God has for his world. And somewhere along the way, we miss that. 
We took part of the vision, which was absolutely true that God loves human beings, and we emphasised it to the neglect of the rest. The third area that I think we've taken a partial vision is we have long said that God will save human souls, but we have neglected the fact that the Bible says God's going to actually save the entire created order. Now, we owe this one to Aristotle and the Stoics. Way back early in the history of the church, they said, what makes you really human? What makes you truly alive is your soul, and it's trapped inside your body. And what God's going to do is he's going to get, take your soul after you die and take it up to heaven to be with him, and then you'll live in heaven for eternity, and you'll leave this material world and all its you know, imperfections and, and flawed things, you'll leave that behind for this spiritual existence with God for eternity in heaven. And we took that and we overlaid that on the Bible, on those parts where it says that when we die, we go to be in the presence of the Lord if we're people of faith. And we stopped there. We came up with this whole theology then it said salvation is about leaving the world behind. Salvation is about leaving your body behind. In fact, the world just is a temporary stage which will ultimately be destroyed and we enjoy bliss in it for eternity with God in heaven. But that's not the whole picture. We do go into the presence of Christ when we die. But the Bible says that's the, that's the sort of halfway house before God finishes his work of redemption, which is to redeem and restore the entire creation. So you go to the book of Revelation and it doesn't talk about, I saw you know, heaven and earth going up to heaven. It says, I saw heaven coming down and recreating the earth, the new heavens and a new earth, where there's no more mess, death, mourning, crying or pain. You go to Romans chapter 8, and there's this magnificent passage where Paul says, you know, he's talking about the suffering we experience now. And, you know, back in the ancient world, people experienced, you know, suffering that was extraordinarily great. And he says, you know, God's solution to that is to save us from our suffering. But he doesn't say God saves us from our suffering by redeeming our souls into heaven. You remember what he says? We groan as we await the redemption of our bodies. Paul says salvation is patent upon the resurrection. Not the release of the soul from the body, but on the resurrection of the human person to new life. And a little earlier in that passage in Romans 8, he says, you know what, not only human beings are going to be resurrected, but the entire creation will be resurrected and put right. He says creation groans, it's crying out, longing for its liberation, which will come when it finds the fullness of the glory of God. Doesn't that change everything? Doesn't that change the way we value creation? Put all these things together. Here's the partial vision we've, we've lived with for a long time. We've said the earth is a resource purely for the use of human beings. That God's love and concern is only for humankind. And that God's love and concern will see us whisked out of this world for an eternity in an immaterial realm. On that view, how do you value the earth? How do you value creation? Well, firstly, you say it doesn't have much to do with spirituality because we're going to leave it all behind. It's not the true essence of who we are. And at its best, it says, well, we might care for the earth if it's going to affect us. We might care for the animals if, you know, animals dying off is going to affect us. We might care for the planet systems if we're going to get badly affected by them. 
But that's all you end up saying. This big vision that the creation texts present us with says God loves his world. God loves everything about it. God's pulsating, passionate love for all. And that means we should care for it. It means we should see ourselves as living within the temple of God, respecting and honouring everything that exists as part of the temple of God and as the object of God's love. So how do we live? Very quickly, let me suggest three things. Well, four things. First, you actually should take away what I'm saying and test it because some of the concepts we've gone over, big concepts maybe new, and, you know, I might be full of rubbish. I don't think I am, but you need to test that for yourselves. Check it out against the scriptures. If you want to explore it more, a shameless plug, I've got my book here, um, A Beautiful World, you can buy it in the bookstore for 10 bucks. First thing is worship. If we go to the next slide. See yourself as a worshipper in God's creation. Allow everything you see and touch and smell to remind you of the glory of God. Stop and smell the roses and let it remind you of the fragrant beauty of a God who creates such a thing. Secondly, take personal action. Take personal action to care for the creation. If you notice, Christmas beetles have disappeared. When I was a kid, we used to collect them in bucket loads. You know why they've disappeared? Because the larvae of Christmas beetles feed on native grasses and native shrubs. And we've ripped them all out. Plant some natives. Bring back the Christmas beetles. When you go shopping, look for the ecologically friendly products to buy and preference them. When you go shopping, look for the products that don't involve cruelty to animals because if God cares for the cattle of Nineveh, surely he cares for the pigs and the chickens of Australia. Shop in an ecologically friendly way. Find ways to personally build care for creation into your living. But finally, get political. Now, by that, I don't mean, you know, vote Labor or vote Liberal or vote Greens. I mean, whoever is in power, tell them you want them to care for the environment. Personal action alone will not get us across the challenges we face. We have overstepped the, the boundaries of creation and its capacity to provide it, and we need systemic action to change that. We need personal action and we need public action. So get in the ear of your politicians, whoever you support, whether they're Greens, Liberal or Labor or, or whoever, and say to them, I don't care what party you're from, what I care about is that this earth matters and I want to see us caring for it and encourage them to implement good environmental policies. Again, there's more upon how you can do that things in, in the book and um, on the various websites you can go to. I'd encourage you to take these things up and make care for creation, not something that's peripheral to your following of Jesus, but something that is central to your identity as a follower of Jesus and a one who worships the creator of all. Please let me pray with you. Lord Jesus, forgive us for thinking it's all about us. That this earth exists only for us. And help us to see it as the place of your, that is your temple, of your, your glory, your majesty, your love, your care. Help us to be good worshippers in your temple to allow all those things we see, the beautiful corals of the reef, the mountain vistas, whatever it is that fills us with awe, to direct that towards you in praise and adoration. And help us to love and care for this earth as you love and care for it. To build this into our living. 
and to build it into our prophetic speaking. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.